0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org. You can find it on page 867 in the Bibles in Your Rose if you'd like to follow along as I read. Luke 9 21 to 27. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the word
1: of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Good morning, New City. My name is uh, Zach Meyer, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to see that you have all survived uh, Taylor Swift's uh, entrance into Cincinnati. I uh, got a little bit more fun this weekend with her here, and uh, glad all the traffic will hopefully return to normal. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at some words from Scripture. Uh, and if you were to ask somebody, just random person on the side of the street, Uh, what they think uh, the Bible is, they'd probably tell you something along the lines of it tells you what to do. It gives you a blueprint for how to live your life, uh, and it's something that you can pick up, run with, or not. Uh, But what you actually find is that when you look at Scripture, it's less of a, you need to do this, and more of, this is who you are, right? It's an identity book. It's a book that tells us who we are, and by understanding who we are, that helps us to flow into how we're supposed to actually live. And actually looking at today's scripture, one of the things that we see at the heart of it is a very modern question, the question of who am I, right? Who am I? How do I understand myself? How do I relate to this place called the world, right? And there's tons of speculation, too, about uh, how to answer these questions of identity. Uh, Some people suggest that it's what we do, uh, whether that be the type of work we do, the legacy that we leave behind, uh, or maybe even the people that we impact, Uh, Some people suggest that our identity is more connected to causes we rally behind, maybe our political identity, uh, groups, uh, policies that we support. Uh, And some people also say that our identity is connected to our sexuality, um, to things that we've experienced in our past or our people have experienced in our past. Uh, And certainly, these are things uh, that tell us a lot about a person. Uh, These are things that we interact with on a daily basis. But ultimately, these are things that don't get down to the core of who a human is, and also who we're supposed to be in the world. Uh, We have an identity problem. We don't really know who we are. Uh, If you ask a lot of people, that's something that that can resonate with many of them. And so when you come to the Bible, you see something very interesting about how it handles uh, the idea of our identity. You'll see that our identity is intricately connected to God's identity, so much so that as we actually begin to understand who God is, we understand who we are as well. And that's what we see at the heart of today's passage, uh, that if we actually want to know ourselves, our true selves, uh, God says to come follow me. He says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Uh, The word life here um, is the Greek word psyche. Uh, which Eugene Peterson in his translation of the Bible, The Message, translates as our true selves. It's a helpful and accurate translation there. Uh, So what God is inviting us is he's saying, uh, come find out who you are, come learn from me. Uh, In other words, what Jesus is saying, not just to his disciples, uh, but also to our modern selves is this, that to truly know yourself, you must come and see something about me. You must come and see something about my heart. And what we find at the heart of the God of the universe isn't self-indulgence, it isn't self-obsession, but it's a radical denial that demonstrates itself through radical self-giving. Right? It's radical denial that demonstrates itself through radical self-giving. What we'll see is that as we come to know God, we actually find that's true about ourselves as well, uh, that we most are clearly connected to who we are when we pour ourselves out into the kingdom of God. Uh, And I think we all kind of know that at a certain level, right? Um, Going through uh, the pandemic, uh, many of us had the opportunity to kind of pull back. Uh, Our world shrank a little bit. Uh, And what started out as an opportunity to kind of pull back and rest, over time we realized it became kind of a deadening experience, right? Uh, Having a movie night every single night uh, doesn't feel like that much fun after a while. Uh, Diving really deep into your personal hobbies over time feels just blah, right? Um, If you kind of just spend the same amount of time with the same people over and over and over again, right, there's a sense in which your world has shrunk and you realize you're just kind of pouring yourself out into your own little world. Uh, Things like this help us understand that we're actually designed to have obligations uh, and to interact with people and things outside of our own little world. Um, That's what we're made for, is to pour ourselves out into the broader world. And yet on on another level, uh, we also can't help but stockpile kind of our time our energy, our money, and also our influence. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, an author and journalist, he refers to this as dragon psychology, uh, and he uses the character of Smog uh, from the story of The Hobbit uh, to kind of demonstrate what most of our art museums actually do, right? Smog is this dragon, and he kind of gathers around his treasure. Uh, he doesn't let anybody in there, and he kills them if they come to see it, right? Uh, now, art museums don't kill people who come to see their art. Uh, But what art museums do is they actually have these huge collections that are not even open to the public, that they're just put away, stored away. Uh, And what that demonstrates kind of in the heart of a lot of uh, art museums and also the heart of smog, right, is this idea that we're so worried about our collections and what that says about us, what we can brag about, that we actually care about people being able to see them. And so on a deeper level, we see that our hearts kind of tend to run just like that, that we're very similar to smog, we're just like the art museums. Uh, We really want to preserve what we have because we're deeply afraid of what we might find if we lose everything that we boast in. And the irony of this, the thing that Jesus wants us to avoid, right, is this that protecting our treasures will only make us lose touch with who we really are, right? If we try and save our life, we're actually going to lose our life. We'll lose our very selves. That is, we get so caught up with protecting, chasing after, maintaining the stuff, the accomplishments, the connections and the experiences that we've been accumulating, we'll actually begin to find that we believe that we actually are those things. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy that Jesus wants us to avoid. So this morning, he's here to rescue us from that with these words that he gives to us. And we're gonna see how he does that today by looking at these three points. First, we're gonna see uh, that Jesus breaks our expectations. Um, this is connected to who he is as a Messiah. He breaks our expectations. Second, that Jesus forms our identity, right? So he breaks us down and he rebuilds us. Into an identity that he's given us. And then finally, that Jesus actually powers our life. He gives us the power to live the life that he's designed us for. So we're going to look at that first one that Jesus breaks our expectations. Uh, so last week, uh, if you'll remember, we concluded with Peter uh, kind of proclaiming in front of the other disciples that Jesus was the Christ. This is a big proclamation. In uh, some other translations or uh, in different books of the Bible, actually, it even says that Jesus call, or that Peter called Jesus the Messiah uh, or the Christ, and both of those are just a Greek version and a Hebrew version of the same word that means anointed, uh, and what that anointing is is basically you would be anointed with oil, and then you would be sent out into an office uh, of, the, you know, of ancient Israel, so you'd think about like a prophet, a priest, a king, Uh, So the idea of there being messiahs or Christ wasn't that big of a deal, right? There were plenty of Christ, plenty of messiahs um, who filled those offices. However, since the time of David, there had been a promise from God for not a messiah, but the messiah, right? Like think like the ultimate anointed one. Uh, And we see that this promise of the messiahs kind of developed, right? That God actually helps us understand what the messiah will look like. And we can see that in places in books like Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Psalms, in several other places, Uh, but one commentator kind of helps summarize all that for us, and he says this is basically what Peter in first century Jews would have been uh, expecting uh, the Messiah to look like. That the Messiah would be a superhuman being who would overthrow Israel's enemies, regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world, and make Jerusalem the center of the world, establishing the perfect reign of God on earth. So you can imagine right, with Peter calling Jesus the Messiah, that there is excitement in the room. Uh, Ideas of rebellion, military conquest, power, control, freedom are just kind of flooding and surging through these Jewish men's minds, hearts, and bodies. These are the promises. These are the things that have been taught to them their entire lives. These are the things that they have been preparing for in their hearts. Uh, And as kind of a reference point of the level of excitement that they were feeling, uh, and also kind of as just an uh, illustration using July 4th, uh, I imagine this is probably the same kind of feeling that the American revolutionaries would have, right? When they found out that the French were actually going to come in and help them fight off the British. A greater power has come in to help fight off the oppressors, and that there is an actual freedom here being brought to them. There's excitement. That's kind of what's going on in the minds of the disciples right now. Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah and you could imagine that everyone else in the room is like, let's go, let's make this happen. Um, Now, I think you're gonna think I'm insane when I say this, but one of my favorite places to serve at New City is actually with the toddlers. Um, Yep, see, there's some laughter. Uh, And I know there's a lot of uh, sadness sometimes, a lot of tears, uh, a lot of of wildness in there, uh, but it's, it's one of my favorite places to actually see kids' energy and also their just sincerity and connection come out. Uh, and one of the places I love to see this is actually when you play with blocks, um, you know, these kind of blocks, They're these, these, con- these uh, little cardboard blocks. And typically what happens is it starts out like this. You'll be with like one, maybe two kids, right? And you'll just be there with the blocks, start to stack them up, and it maybe takes 10 seconds for them to go, it'd be more fun to knock this over. They boom, knock it over, right? And you might, maybe, you'll do it one more time, boom, they knock it over. But then the whole rest of the toddler class has heard and seen this, they're like, this This is fun. I want to do that, right? And then they all come over, and before you can even put one block up, they're just kicking and flapping and knocking everything around, right? Uh, That is the kind of energy, right, that is going on in the disciples. Uh, In verse 21, Jesus uh, kind of responds to Peter not by uh, denying what he has said or even affirming it. He's kind of just saying, like, hold on a second. Hang on. You have a lot of energy right now, and I want to redirect this. It's not that Jesus doesn't want people to know he's the Messiah. Uh, If that was the case, we probably would have never gotten the Great Commission. Uh, Instead, Jesus just wants his disciples, uh, or he wants to prevent them from kind of running around and telling everyone that he's the Messiah at that moment, because they don't understand yet what he's come to do as the Messiah. He doesn't want them to communicate a misunderstanding about who he is, and Jesus wants them to know that who uh, that, who he is actually is tied to what he has to do. Uh, One commentator actually says that this misunderstanding that they're having right now uh, is a dangerous one of timing and not of substance. So in other words, Peter's words are true, right? Jesus is the Messiah. However, the excitement that this stirs up in the disciples makes them want to kind of go play blocks, right, Uh, and go run out and make all of these promises to Israel to come true that night if they could make it happen. And so Jesus is slowing them down. He's kind of saying, we're not playing blocks, right? Right? we're playing something a little bit more like dominoes. That there's a certain order of things that have to unfold in a certain way for me to actually fulfill what I've come to do as the Messiah. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking the disciples' understanding of who the Messiah would be and he's taking them further in. He's taking them deeper into the meaning of who he is. Now there's this uh, scene uh, in the movie, The Princess Bride, uh, where you know the bad guys have stolen Princess Buttercup and they've climbed up the, uh, I think they're called the Cliffs of Insanity, uh, and Vizini, he's, you know, the more intellectual of them all, kind of uh, looks over and sees Wesley coming up uh, the cliffs of insanity with no helps, might you add. And he uh, proclaims his catchphrase, which is inconceivable, right? There you go. He proclaims inconceivable. Uh, and one of the other bad guys at the time, who later becomes a good guy, his name is Indigo Montoya, he looks at him and he says, you keep using that word. I don't think you know it. I don't think it means what you think it means, Right? And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, all of Israel keeps using this word Messiah, right? I don't, think you, I don't think it means what you think it means. Let me tell you, as the Messiah, let me tell you what the Messiah is. Let me tell you what I have to come and do. Instead of military conquest, instead of becoming an earthly king, uh, Jesus kind of explodes the disciples' expectations when he says this next. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and to be killed, and then on the third day, be raised. So in a span of moments, what you have is probably like the most exciting thing that the disciples could ever have hoped for to the oddest, most like deflating thing that they couldn't have ever imagined, right? There's a big swing here. There's this big coming from a place of hope to then kind of feeling devastated. And I imagine many of us in this room kind of feel that same way with God at times. Uh, The excitement of his kingdom, the hope, for what that means for our futures and the calling to be a part of something bigger than ourselves can be really energizing, really encouraging, really animating. But then what we inevitably find out, right, is that God doesn't always work how we think he should. He presses on our expectations, and it can be really disappointing, right? God can be slower than we hoped. His patience with evil can frustrate us. Uh, His kindness can feel more like ignorance than it can long-suffering. Uh, and his rules can feel burdensome. So for us, I think it's an appropriate question to ask this morning, how does this hit you when we see a God like this? What do you think of a God like this who answers our deepest questions and provides for our most pressing needs through denying himself, through suffering, and through even his own death? How does that sit with us? And if you're sitting there and it's like, it doesn't sit well with me, <laughs> right? I think we're in good company. Uh, remember the disciples, right? Remember the disciples who were even there with him in the room Uh, Peter, right, he wasn't known for his patience. He actually cut an ear off of one of the Roman guards when Jesus was being arrested. Uh, Simon, uh, he was referred to as Simon the Zealot. uh, And he would, because he was so zealous for the kingdom of God coming, he would gladly have rather killed Roman soldiers than forgiven them. Uh, And James and John actually at one point in the Gospels asked Jesus, hey, can we call down lightning and fire from heaven to kill these people who have rejected us? Um, They, just like us, are really bound up in the cultural markers around us that say, that give us meaning. Uh, The things that we think will give hope for our future and the sense of security that we kind of derive from them. And so here's what Jesus is doing for them and for us. He's actually flipping it upside down. He's saying these things aren't actually where your hope is. Your hope is actually in the wrong place. So if you feel disappointed, I'm actually pulling you away from these things that you think will give you hope, that you think will give you security, that you think will give you a future, and I'm directing you back to me. Don't look to what your culture says will give you purpose or a sense of self, even if that's to be a good person, but instead, look to me, I provide that. I am the one who forms your identity, which is our next point. So on its face, Peter and the other disciples were right to be kind of sad and confused when they heard these words from Jesus. When he said, I must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed and then on the third day be raised. But what's easy to miss is in these words is actually the most hopeful thing, right? There's a, there's a picture of what can actually give an enduring sense of self that will help you move towards suffering, that will help you move towards self-denial, and that would even help you move towards death if necessary. And we're going to see what that looks like. One of the things, kind of taking a broader view, if you look at Scripture, one of the two things that you'll see from cover to cover is first, the holiness of God, right? You see this holy, righteous, beautiful God, and then in contrast to that, you see the brokenness of sinful humanity, um, a self-centeredness that kind of tears us away from the rest of the world. And in a sense, if if you wanted to, you could zoom in and kind of say that the Bible is all about how God's reconciling that tension, how God is trying to be righteous with a sinful, broken people. And in the beginning, you actually see the holy God, right, making man in his image in such a way that they actually derive their sense of self, uh, their sense of meaning uh, from their relationship with God. Well, then when sin enters into the world, there's this gap torn between God and man, uh, so much so that we actually become self-centric, right, circling around ourselves, instead of being God-centric the way that we were designed. And that's actually what the Bible calls sin, and it's this kind of ever-inward-facing ever bent that seeps into all of who we are, every single pocket. And it causes chaos wherever you look. You can open the Bible and on any page, you can see that chaos unfolding. Uh, You can talk to any friend, asking them about their lives. You can look in your own life. You can turn on the TV. You can listen to a podcast and you hear that chaos kind of unfolding. And so the greatest tension in the Bible again, what you see is how does a holy God dwell with a broken, sinful humanity? And what we find is that there is actually no way for this to happen. We can't fix it, we can't get to God, we can't make ourselves right. So the beautiful thing, right, this is the gospel, is that we actually see God say, I know you can't do that, and I'm gonna do that for you. So, so much do I love you that I'm gonna kinda move towards you. I'm gonna end this separation by bringing my people back to myself. And so when we see today's passage where Jesus says that he must go suffer, that he must be rejected, that he must die, that he must be raised again, what he's saying to us is, I have to go face the consequences of mankind's sin on their behalf so that they can have my record of perfection so that we can be together again, so that this gap of sin can be destroyed and we can be together. This is kind of what theologians call the great exchange. It's removing the consequences of our sins and restoring us to God on the basis of Christ's perfection. So what we see in this is, is the shocking words that the disciples heard is actually the life-giving words that we all needed. Uh, they didn't know that yet. We have a little bit of a different kind of perspective now and can see that. But this is actually the power of God to save us all. Uh, and surprisingly, at the heart of Jesus' statement, right, isn't just salvation. A lot of times we can say like, oh, you know, the gospel is kind of a ticket to heaven. Uh, it's much more than that. Uh, it's a sense of meaning that actually cuts to the depth of a human heart And actually provides the only way to kind of sustain uh, a life of self-denial and a life of self-giving. Ernest Beckert, a non-believing Pulitzer Prize-winning author, he writes this. He says that most of our life is in large part a rationalization of our failure to find out who we really are, what our basic strength is, and what thing it is that we're meant to work upon the world. The issue of identity cannot possibly be dealt with strictly using psychology. Identity has to do with what are we here for? What is the work we are meant to work upon the world? Now, what Becker is getting at is this, that a, a human being, as human beings, we are made to have our identities constituted in a broader narrative, something bigger than ourselves, something beyond just us. That the meaning of the world, the meaning of God, is what ultimately gives us our meaning. It gives us our direction. It helps us find our broader purpose and also the smaller ways that we're meant to work God's kingdom out upon the world. And so Jesus here, he's not just saying, I give you salvation, he's actually saying, I give you salvation, and I also am giving you kind of your origin story, uh, the way for you to actually understand who you are and how to live in the world. You know the concept of origin stories, right? It's kind of like, how does a person or a character become who they are? Uh, So how does Harry Potter become Harry Potter? Uh, He ultimately becomes Harry Potter by the shielding love of his parents. Uh, How does Spider-Man become Spider-Man? Spider-Man. He becomes Spider-Man basically from receiving those words from Uncle Ben, Uh, with great power comes with great responsibility. And so for us, we could look to ourselves and say, how do we get our identity? How do we become ourselves? And And the answer is, it's through Christ's work, through what he does, and by heeding his words that call us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow him. That's what's kind of written not only in our hearts, but also into the heart of the universe. It's what's most natural. It's what we are most called to do, and Jesus actually enables us to do it. More than simply good news, this is good news that actually transforms our identity and the way that we operate in the world. Uh, Many of us, um, I think we can hear Jesus' words here the same way, again, that the disciples did. Uh, First, it's kind of a total bummer, right? All the air is getting sucked out of the room. Um, And though Jesus is definitely calling us to obedience, he's definitely calling us to sacrifice, it's very easy for us to miss the invitation here to rest. But there's something deep in here that Jesus is calling us to come and to enjoy. The invitation to stop trying to create our own meaning, right? Isn't that exhausting, trying to create your own meaning? To rest from the fear that if we don't exert our will in the right way at the right time in the world, that will be finished. Isn't that exhausting? Jesus is calling us to rest from that. Jesus' words here, though definitely a calling on our lives, are uh, primarily a calling to receive. Not just to go do, but to receive. To give up trying to find meaning in being the perfect parent. Uh, to be the one who leaves a legacy behind. Uh, to make your home the way that you've always dreamed it would be. Uh, to let go of trying to be everything for everyone. To let go of trying to have the answer for every injustice that you encounter in your personal life and in the broader world. And to let go of establishing your own kind of brand and your friend group and your industry or your pocket of Cincinnati. It's not that these are bad things, it's just they occupy too much of our hearts. And we might find this to be true, um, that yes, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to be a good person. I'm called to be good. I'm called to sacrifice for other people. But we're often very blinded to the things that grab our hearts. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, refers to these as idols. Uh, things that we worship more than God, things that kind of demand more of our personality, more of our heart than we would say. Uh, and he gives us these kind of questions to help us recognize what those areas might be. He says, first, um, what do you characteristically day- daydream about, right? When you don't have anything going on, you just kind of zone out, where are your thoughts running to? Uh, second, what do you fear most? What could you lose that would make life not worth living? Uh, kind of gives life less, uh, less flavor, less excitement, Uh, What fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt? Uh, That usually points out something that you're protecting, that you're very much committed to. And then finally, what do you effortlessly spend too much money on? Uh, Mine's running shoes, that's one of them. Um, So you'll see that what you'll often find, that these aren't necessarily bad things, right? It's not bad to go running, Uh, it's not bad to be invested in different ways into your family, Uh, but it's ultimately that these are good desires, um, that have ult- taken the ultimate source of our significance, of our security, of our safety, and our fulfillment, and it's killing us, and we don't even know it. And so we have to ask the question: You know, how do I let go of those things? How do I actually live for God the way that He's calling me? And we see that in our third point that Jesus is the one who powers our life, who actually enables us to do this. Um, and it would be an understatement to say that what Jesus is calling us to isn't or is just a tall order, right? It's, it's more than that. It's a total life transformation. Not only is he calling us to follow him, but he's also calling us to let go of other things that we tend to run to in order to find comfort and meaning, like we had just discussed. Uh, perhaps the, the best phrase in this whole, whole uh, passage that we're looking at to help us understand what letting go looks like is this phrase, to take up your cross. Um, and there's a good description from one commentator that notes, like, the disciples would have understood exactly what this meant, this is what he says. He says, when a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. This is kind of the real forsaking that's involved with following Jesus and making him the center of your world. But there are actually parts of your life, parts of your loves that you have to turn your back on, right, you're on a one-way journey so that when Jesus calls you from something into himself, you know you're moving somewhere. You're not going back, you're not returning. And so a fair question, like when that's, those are the stakes, that's what you're being called to. A fair question is to say, where do we get that power from? What enabled the disciples to do that? What enables me to do that? If sin bends us inward, how do I get bent back into the shape that I was designed to be in? And you can kind of see it here, actually, in our passage in verse 27, though it's kind of a little bit hidden. We're gonna unpack it real quick. And it says this, verse 27 says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here Who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, Now, a lot of people can read this and kind of say, like, Jesus is saying that there's some people with him right now who are not going to die until he returns at the end of time. Uh, Most people don't think that's actually the case. uh, But the, the three things actually get put forward here is that what Jesus is talking about is like, there are people right now who are about to see the kingdom break in in a way that they have never seen and, in fact, has never been done. And there's three ways that, that many people think it is is. First, the transfiguration, which we're going to look at next week, uh, where we see a bit of kind of Jesus' heavenly self like, crash into the world. Uh, second is talking about Jesus' resurrection. And then the third is Jesus' ascension. Um, so while there's some kind of debate over like which of those are the, is it that Jesus is talking about, the thing that isn't up for debate is this. So what Jesus is highlighting is that his work and death are bringing the kingdom of God crashing into our reality. That in Jesus, there's a degree of the power of God coming to bear in our world that had not yet been. That through Jesus, not only is the gap of sin closed between us and God, but actually the power of God is given to mankind. That we actually receive the power of God in our very lives. And that's ultimately the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit actually enables us to, over time, begin to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, and also to deny ourselves for the sake of his kingdom. So far from Jesus calling us to just kind of be better, to just try harder, and just to kind of put on a self-righteous face, Jesus is saying, no, 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 I've forgiven you, and I'm also empowering this to happen over time. I'm actually giving you the power to become more and more into the person who I made you to be. Jesus gives us his spirit, a lifeline to the kind of power we need to actually die to ourselves and to give ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. And because of the spirit, we actually have a resource to give ourselves, right? To give of ourselves. Because we have this resource, we actually have more than ourselves, more than our own limits, more than our own power. We actually have the power of God. We begin to see that as we love Jesus more, we're able to kind of let go of the things that we once loved in order to love the things and enjoy the things that Jesus has called us to. Uh, A great example of this is what happens in parenting, right? Uh, Many times when you have a child, Uh, you have to then sacrifice a lot of things. Um, But what we find is that as our love grows for our children, we're more and more able to kind of give up those things, despite how good they are, uh, for the sake of our kids. Uh, So kind of like the loss of freedom you have just to kind of go out and grab pizza, watch a movie with some friends, uh, the kind of freedom that you had to go take that vacation uh, that you really wanted to take, uh, the hours that you might have had to put in to get that promotion, you can't really do that anymore. Uh, there's, There's some real loss here, and sometimes they can be really tough. Uh, But what you'd never say is that those things are more important than your child. You know instinctively that they're not. And similarly, this is kind of what the Holy Spirit does in us. As he helps us fall in love with Jesus more and more, we can tend to let go of those things uh, that we thought made us important because we have a greater love that actually defines our world and that gives shape to it. Uh, One of the C.S. Lewis's often quoted passages is about the weakness of our desires, right? We uh, tend to have weak desires that latch on to lesser things and instead of recognizing the greatness of our desires and how that helps us grab on to God, um, this is actually what it says. It says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak, that we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. And so imagine that picture, right? That you are far too easily pleased, right? Making mud pies in the slum. And your heavenly Father comes to you and says, I have something much more beautiful for you. And you see that. And over time, that actually enables you to let go of those mud pies, right? To let go of the, the drinks, the sex, the ambition, whatever it is, right? There's a cost of letting that go, but the real fruit of being with God is much, much richer. And so the Holy Spirit, in other words, uh, helps us kind of see through ourselves to the ultimate reality of God's self-giving, which actually gives animation, direction, and satisfaction to the deepest longings of our souls. Uh, Jesus thinks about us. Um, He does. And when that actually kind of sinks into our hearts and where we actually care much more about what he thinks of us, it actually frees us from what we think about the world or what even maybe the world thinks about us, and that we dive deeper into what Jesus thinks about the world. Uh, so kind of coming to the conclusion, what are some takeaways? What can we do with this? What does kind of taking up our cross daily look like? Uh, how do we deny ourselves? Uh, and how do we get Jesus's power in our lives? So I got three for us. Uh, the first one uh, is to put yourself before the means of grace. Uh, I know every pastor says this, you know, it's kind of like we sneak it into some sermon somewhere. Uh, but put yourself before the means of grace, right? Begin reading your Bible. Be in front of it regularly. Don't just make that a personal thing or something you do with people. Make it both, right? Bring people into it have it be a part of your personal life. Uh, Develop a personal prayer life as well. Uh, Bring other people into that. Uh, Commit to kind of being in a local church and diving into the community there. Because what you find is that's kind of like the ground with which, where Jesus does this work. It's not just off kind of at home in your Bible with your nose in your Bible. It's actually doing scripture with people, living the kingdom of God with one another where we see that fruit be poured out. And so Jesus is calling you, be committed to your people. Uh, Be committed to the people I've I've won you into. Uh, Also, participate in the sacraments, right? Uh, The Lord's Supper is a real grace. It's something that truly helps us, strengthens us, uh, nourishes us spiritually, and and helps us to continue to sacrifice and to live for the kingdom. Uh, So let's take Jesus at his word, right, when he calls us to these things and actually dig in there. Uh, The second one uh, is look where God has called you to be, like where he has you locationally, right? And also use your imagination, uh, I love the idea of imagination, the idea that we actually, you know, sometimes as adults we tend to lose this, but the reality is like, you are just a massively creative problem solver. You are somebody who sees beauty in corners where other people can't. And so unleash that. So, what God is calling us to do is He's saying, I've put you in this particular place, this particular neighborhood, this particular group of people, this industry, this job, this family, this friend group. Now, use your imagination to kind of see the ways in which you can show them my presence, you can show them my grace. Uh, that you can uh, love them, sacrifice for them, this is what I'm calling you to. Uh, so some examples of this, uh, you know, look around, maybe you live in a neighborhood where you can notice that people are really disconnected, where there's a lot of loneliness there. Use your creativity, use some imagination about how you can actually bring moments of connection and healing to that place that's a little bit more lonely. Uh, if you live in an area of the city where you see a lot of poverty, a lot of racism, um, be praying be thinking about ways that you can uh, learn that you can listen and that you can actually serve in those deep contexts of hurt um, if you are find yourself in an unbelieving family uh, unbelieving friend group unbelieving workplace use your imagination how you can pray for them how you can serve them how you can love them like Jesus uh, be thinking about what is it that they find beautiful and how can I build a bridge between that and the gospel uh, that's the natural way God has designed them to see the gospel, and I want to be able to help, help bring them across that bridge. Um, ask Jesus to show himself to you and show these places for you to use your imagination. Uh, and then finally, uh, this is a reminder. Uh, one of the practical things we can take, a, a take away is remember that this call uh, to take up your cross isn't a one-time deal, right? Jesus says do this daily. Um, and what that means, I think, for many of us um, Many of us tend to be very achievement-oriented, right? We tend to be the people who love check boxes. we want to move on to the next thing. Uh, and our spiritual life with God isn't that thing. Uh, it's actually a reminder to us that we're in a process, uh, that this isn't something that we're going to figure out this week, this month, next couple of years, but it's actually a process that we're invited to be in until Christ comes again, and that in that process, it's not a bad process to be in, right? There's a part of dying to ourselves. There's a part of seeing Jesus' kingdom is more beautiful, of knowing who God is to a greater and greater degree that is good. So ultimately, the takeaway there is just be gentle with yourself. Um, Know that your Savior is also gentle with you, that he is trustworthy, that he is going to bring about the promises that he's made to you, that he's made to us in his word. So be gentle. So in closing, just trust Jesus. Uh, He's shown you that he's willing to give everything for you, and you can bet that He's going to continue to do that as He helps you to live out who He's made you to be. Let's pray. Father, in Your almighty power, who became weak, and in Your perfection, who became lowly, grant us to have the same mind. All that we have uh, doesn't come from us, and if we have any good in us, it is wholly Your gift to us. Savior, since You, the Lord of heaven and earth, humbled Yourself. Grant us true humility and make us like yourself. In your infinite goodness, unleash the power of your spirit in our lives and help us to live as you made us. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City c i n c y org Thanks for joining us today and God bless you